Tonight, we have the um, opportunity to start and the privilege to start a new series here on Sunday nights, one I've been looking forward to for a couple of months now. We just had to make it through the end of the summer, kind of the schedule and the things that kind of take place as you um, kind of wrap everything up there. And I wanted to to, uh, lay this out here for us as we begin the fall. Um, So I invite you to turn tonight to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to kind of be all over the place tonight in Ecclesiastes because this is kind of an introductory uh, message just to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be because it's going to take some time. Um, There's 12 chapters here at Ecclesiastes. It takes time to work through these things, you know, verse by verse as we normally do. Um, But I always find it helpful to to have a heading uh, where we're going and a framework for which we can understand uh, where this book was written. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff tonight. We're going to spend a good portion here in a few minutes in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Later on, I want to show you some very important verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And there'll be a few other things in between that we'll do. A lot of these will be on the screen um, as well. But I invite you, I always encourage you uh, to have your own Bible there uh, open as we look at this. And maybe you've spent some time in Ecclesiastes, maybe you haven't. Maybe it's one of those things that you've read mostly as you tried to read through your Bible in a year, or um, you spent time studying different parts of the, the Scriptures, and uh, maybe you have your own views on Ecclesiastes. I, I think it'd be fun to hear what people uh, thought think about that, but because I have so much I want to say tonight, we're not going to take time for um, audience participation. So you'll have to just hold those answers and tell me afterwards some things that you have observed or seen as you studied Ecclesiastes or read it or heard it before. Would you agree with this, that we live in a world searching for purpose? Every day, people seek out that which they believe will make them happy, give them guidance, or fulfill their deepest desires. And every day, millions of people are disappointed once again when that which they gave their lives and strength to lets them down yet again. Does that sound discouraging? Well, it is. But that's really the truth of what happens in our world. And if we're honest, we ourselves have been part of the millions upon millions of people disappointed by what we have or what we've experienced in this life. We've pinned our hopes and our purpose to something here in this world, and we found that whatever it was, whether it be a person or a thing that we have or an experience, whatever we pinned our happiness to or our joy or our fulfillment to has let us down. We've all come to experience that at some point. That's, what, as we say, part of life, right? This afternoon, something happened, and one of our kids said, well, that's not very fair. And always when it comes to my mind, whenever someone says that, it's what my mom always said, right? And your mom probably said it too. What? Life's not fair, right? And we've all experienced these things in our lives where even the good things we have or the most dependable people we know eventually let us down. And the longer we live, the more this seems to happen. Sometimes it actually seems like this happens more often than not. So the question becomes, what do we do with the school of hard knocks that we call life? Well, the great news is We're not the first ones to ask this question, and we won't be the last ones to ask this question. And the greater news is this, God is always sovereignly in control and has the answers in his word. 
Whenever uh, I have an opportunity to meet with people, you know, whether in my office for counseling or we're, we're having lunch and they're, they're sharing some things that are going on in life and they're looking for, for uh, some guidance from the scripture, one of the things I always remind people is because God is sovereign and because we have his word, there's always hope. God gives us hope. And, and no matter what we experience in life, there's always hope in who he is. The book of Ecclesiastes, located in what we call the wisdom writings of the Old Testament, deals with a lot of the things that we just mentioned. It says a lot about life's disappointments and the eternal perspective that we can gain through the temporal experiences of this life. So let's look at some introductory thoughts tonight regarding this book and help us set the stage. And, and just to kind of give you an idea of, of what we want to see tonight in this, we want to see this, that a meaningful life is found in an eternal perspective that comes from a relationship with God. The way that you interpret this temporal life has everything to do with your relationship with the eternal God. Because if you don't have a relationship with God, then this, this, this world is all you have, and it's, it's one big letdown after another, whether we admit it or not. If we do have a relationship with God, we, through his word, have the ability to see him and his... Now, we may not always understand or see exactly what he sees, but we see that he has the eternal perspective. And he uses the things that we experience in this life coupled with his word to teach us about himself and teach us about ourselves and our relationship to him. And we're going to see that tonight through kind of this general overview of what Ecclesiastes is and where it comes from. And so I want to start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, right? And that is the title. The title of the book is Ecclesiastes. Now, this is a really interesting thing when you begin to, to study this out, okay? You're like, wow, where is he going with this? Trust me, this is not the main point of the message, okay? But I think it's, it's something that, that helps us understand because Ecclesiastes does not come from the Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and some Aramaic, Right? It, it actually, Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek and the Latin translations of the book of Ecclesiastes. The Septuagint, how many of you are familiar with the Septuagint? Anybody? Okay, okay. If you aren't, now you will be, okay? It looks like the word Septuagint. Don't say it that way, okay? I'm going to help you out, all right? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's where they took the Old Testament and translated it into the Greek. It's, it, it'll be referred to, sometimes you're reading a commentary. Um, it's, oftentimes you'll see the, the, the Roman numerals LXX for 70. That's talking about the Septuagint. And the title that was used in the Septuagint was this title of, of Ecclesiastes. And it refers to the preacher. And it's derived from the word, another word, which means, which is ecclesia. Now, how many of you are familiar with the word ecclesia? Okay, that's, that's a word that you run across a lot in the New Testament because it refer, that word refers to an assembly or a gathering. Okay, so if the word ecclesia refers to assembly or gathering, what word do you think that comes up first in the New Testament ecclesia is often translated as? Church, right? So you say, okay, so how do we get this word that means that means assembly or gathering, or, or in the New Testament it's translated as, as church, you know, as, as the church began to develop. How, how does that happen? Well, where does that come from in Ecclesiastes? Well, that's because of the title that is used in Ecclesiastes 1.1. In Ecclesiastes 1.1, you read this, the words of the preacher. Now, the word translated preacher here 
is a Hebrew word, obviously, and the Hebrew Hebrew word is kohelet. That's how you say that, okay? Kohelet. Now, kohelet means one who gathers the people, okay? He is a preacher or a teacher would be another way of saying that. So that's where the word Ecclesiastes come from, one who, a, a, a gathering, one who gathers the people together, the assembly and the congregation. So then, so, so the term translated into Greek has held on into our English translations today. So if we look at this and we realize that the book of Ecclesiastes is named for the guy who's mentioned in the very first verse, Kohelet, the preacher or the teacher, the one who gathers the people to teach them, the question then easily becomes, who is that, right? Who is the the preacher? Who is the teacher? Who is the one who wants people to come and hear what he has to say? Well, we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about this tonight, the author and, and therefore the date of the book, and then we're going to talk more in depth about who the author is. But I want to give you first um, the fly-by view, and then we'll, then we'll go a little deeper. So Ecclesiastes and its author has become the center of debate throughout the years, and really what I would call, in the, what you might call in the later years of writing. And that doesn't necessarily mean in the last 20 years, that means in the last two to 400 years, in the later years, you know, or so, that these things have, have come around. As historical criticism and linguistic studies have increased, the feelings on Ecclesiastes have become more and more mixed. In fact, there are now many who will argue that the language and style of the Hebrew that's used within the book of Ecclesiastes point to actually a very late date of the authorship of Ecclesiastes. Some have dated this book nearly at the end of the Old Testament writings. Now, while you have many on that side, and I've read a lot of what they have to say, uh, you, have many, you, have some on the, you saw many on the other side, because what is also recognized is we have very limited data about Hebrew writings and the changes in style or vocabulary and more. Because the things we're dealing with, the texts we're dealing with, are already old. And if you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about translations, I showed you things about uh, the data we have from things that are from that long ago. We don't have a ton of data on that kind of stuff. So it is also equally possible that some of these things that, that are looked at in the Hebrew that are attributed to certain outside influences may not be due to all the credited sources that people think they are. So therefore, there has, become, there ha- there has occurred a divide in the scholarship regarding the date and the authorship of Ecclesiastes. There are those who believe Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, and there are those who do not. And I can assure you, because of the books on my desk, that gallons of ink had been spilled on this subject, okay? I mean, just page after page after page of, of why this, was, this person is the author or isn't the author and this and that, and some of it just kind of gets all fuzzy, right, as you begin to read all of this. And so I will share with you tonight where I come down on this and why, Okay? And here's, it, it actually maybe seems very simple, but I've, I've used this statement many times in here before. More important than what anyone has to say about the Bible is what the Bible actually says. And so I'm going to make my case to you of why I think a certain person wrote Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to base it on the book of Ecclesiastes as you look through the book of Ecclesiastes itself. 
So I want you to observe very quickly here some verses with me. If you have your Bible open, you can look there. I'll put them up on the screen. Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes 1.12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes 1.16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had every great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 8, I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Ecclesiastes 12.9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Considering all of those statements, which I have run through very quickly, okay, who would you say the author of Ecclesiastes is? It has to be someone who is the son of David and king in Jerusalem, It has to be someone who had superior wisdom. It has to be someone who is immensely rich, denying himself no pleasure or desire. It must be someone who then prepared Proverbs for others to read. I think the internal evidence of Ecclesiastes speaks very highly for itself, that Solomon is the one who wrote Ecclesiastes. But that's just my opinion, right? Okay? But I believe that as you examine the scriptures and you look at that, and it's really interesting to me that all of these, these guys who write these things, you know, they've put a lot of, I'm not trying to degrade anything they do, but they all say the same thing. Well, you know, you really can't deny what it says about how he has to be a son of David and he ruled in Jerusalem. But, you know, it just always makes me laugh a little bit, right? Because that's what it says. At the same time, there is something interesting that goes on in the book of Ecclesiastes. For, for there are, what, what seems to happen here is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes and the preacher, Kohelet, are, are seen almost as two different characters. That the author kind of introduces us to Kohelet, and then at the end, and he, and he teaches all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and at the end of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the author kind of comes back in to help us make sense of everything we've, we've just learned and heard and talked about. Now, that could still be Solomon presenting himself in two separate characters on the inspiration of God. And, and alternately, as the preacher, you know, he has himself and the preacher teaching us in the book and helping us to do something with this information. And so, if indeed it is Solomon, as I believe it is, this book is actually dated much earlier than has been popular in recent years. The book of Ecclesiastes would be written sometime in Solomon's later years, probably no later than 931 B.C. And, of course, you remember that dates work backwards when you're B.C., so you're talking about 931 years um, before sometime around the birth of Jesus Christ. I think it's obviously written by Solomon, though I suppose 
if you came to these, some of these alternate views, the one that I would make the most room for would be one who sees at a later date using the recorded wisdom of Solomon to compile those works. Perhaps there were things that have been preserved and God inspired that to be used in this way. The words of wisdom colored by life experiences and internal evidence, however, seem to match up with Solomon, the son of David, who ruled in Jerusalem after David. So tonight I want to spend a good bit of time then understanding who Solomon is, because I think that, again, frames for us this whole book, why he wrote it and what it is, okay? So let's take a few minutes and discuss Solomon, because we've all probably heard it, and we've maybe even talked a good bit about it, but this will just give us some good reminders. Who is Solomon? Well, quite frankly, Solomon is the king who had it all in Israel. You have Saul, who's the king, the king that Israel wanted. You have David, who's Israel's greatest human king, and now you have Solomon, who is the king who had it all. His father, David, handed him a peaceful, powerful, and wealthy kingdom. And Solomon certainly faced his own set of challenges ascending to the throne, but he would become the first dynastic ruler of the nation of Israel. You understand that Saul ruled Israel, and none of his sons became rulers in Israel. There was no dynasty set up there. The only one, the first one who would come from the line of his father was Solomon, who ruled in his father's place as a dynasty. His task then was one of maintenance and control of the nation. David, through his lifetime, was a great warrior and had expanded Israel's reach and her borders uh, farther out. And so the political landscape around Israel then also offered Solomon excellent opportunities to excel. If you look at the time that Solomon ruled and you examine the other nations, the other empires that were there, they were really in a, in a downswing. There weren't a lot of powerful nations that were rising up at that time. So Israel was the main factor and the main uh, power in that region after David had passed away and, and what he had done. And so this offered Solomon opportunities in his life to excel. And excel he did. Solomon was an excellent overseer and trader. His kingdom became one of great prosperity for Israel. He brokered many lucrative deals between Israel and other countries, and actually Solomon also became someone that people dealt with for their business to go from one country to another. They would use Solomon and his and the nation of Israel as kind of a broker to make that happen. He also then began to impose foreign and domestic taxes. And behind all of this is a gift that Solomon received from the Lord at the beginning of his reign. The newly minted King Solomon was worshiping the Lord not long after his reign was established. And it is then that we read the most incredible thing in 1 Kings 3, 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. God made a promise to David that he would be with him and his descendants forever. He promised David that the deliverer, the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins, the one who, as God promised Abraham, would be a blessing to many nations, would come through the line of David, would reign on his throne. And so the Lord received Solomon's worship and offered him his blessing in return. Just think about 
what God said to Solomon. He had an incredible choice to make as he stood before the Lord on Gibeon, worshiping him that night. If we could say it this way, what would you ask God for, right? You have all of this stuff ahead of you, and, and, and I know it's really easy to be altruistic and say, well, of course, I would ask for the same thing Solomon would. Would you, right? You know, I, I don't know. We haven't been in that position, but it's an incredible thing for us to think about. Because the response that Solomon gives shows one of incredible humility. In 1 Kings 3.9, he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? What is it that Solomon sought above all else? He sought the wisdom of God in his life. He wanted to rule well. And he realized the only way to rule well is to gain God's perspective and God's help in his life. That's the only way to do anything, right? Is to do it the way God calls us to do it. And so the Lord honored Solomon's request. And really Solomon's wisdom is what became renowned and what people came from all over the place to to observe. You could probably recall some of the things like the Queen of Sheba who came just for that purpose. And frankly, it is because of that wisdom that Solomon was then able to do the things he did for the nation of Israel. It all goes back to what happened in 1 Kings chapter 3. And in his life, Solomon also obeyed and honored the Lord. He led the building of the temple as David, his father, had instructed him to do. And so, therefore, Solomon's prosperity isn't so surprising as you begin to think about Because God blesses those who honor and obey him. Now, this doesn't mean that God overflows the coffers of every person who follows him, right? But material blessings are secondary to the true experience of spiritual blessings from the Lord. God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. Solomon, in his life, never waged any physical wars. You read all throughout David's life, before he was the king, and of course when he was the king, of all the the military conquests that he went out on. He was a man of war. He was a man who, who knew how to kill some Philistines, right? He was a guy who wasn't afraid to hack some people apart, right? This is what happens time after time after time. Solomon, that, you don't read about that in Solomon's life. He doesn't wage physical war. In fact, the Bible only records two attacks that were launched on his kingdom during his reign. And those really became part of God's judgment for the sin of Solomon in his life. Because though Solomon did not wage any physical wars, Solomon was at war in his own heart about things that were going on. Solomon had a weakness that many in his position have. The weakness is pleasure. And Solomon's particular pleasure was women. The scriptures record Solomon's fascination with all manner and number of women and the byproduct of those relationships. You read just eight chapters after we read this about his wisdom from the Lord in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and the Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. 
He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. That is a very sad thing to read. That God gave Solomon this gift, and that gift naturally attracted people to the kingdom. And Solomon went and used it to do great things for God and to exalt the kingdom, but he also then went and used it to serve himself. And we see that as he lived his life, he continued to accumulate these, these women to himself. And it's interesting here. If you notice in that passage, and the passage goes on after this, but I just kind of gave you the, the core of this passage, uh, the, the author of 1 Kings does not condemn the multiple marriages in which Solomon participated. I, again, my opinion is that he assumes we're going to think, well, that's probably not a good idea, right? Because when does that ever turn out well, especially here, you know, as you read the scriptures? It, it doesn't, right? The author goes right for the heart of the issue, and the heart of the issue is Solomon's heart. He has wisdom beyond compare. He has riches beyond imagination and the power to get, do, or experience anything he wants. I mean, he has it all, like we said. He, there is no price too great for Solomon. There is nothing outside of his reach. He experienced the incredible blessings of God in his life, yet how sad it is that we read this in 1 Kings eleven six. So Solomon did that, what was evil, in the sight of the Lord. It did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. One of the things that you and I have to come to realize is that Solomon put the gifts before the giver. Ecclesiastes reads then like one who is reflecting on his life's choices. As you look at the book of Ecclesiastes and you think about the framework of Solomon in his life, it's almost as you can see him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recalling all of these things that he's lived in his life. I've done this. I've tried that. You want to name it? I've done it. And this is what happens. And he is speaking not as one who is not experienced. He's actually quite experienced in this. It is the wisdom of one who both received it from the Lord and then experimented with that wisdom, both to serve the Lord and to serve his own gain. And so then that brings us tonight to the theme of Ecclesiastes. Because as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, some view it in a very pessimistic light. How many of you, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes for yourself, see a lot of pessimism in the book of Ecclesiastes? Anybody? Okay. They look at the ideas and the words that are used and conclude that the author is depressed, dejected, beaten down by life. Others view it actually as a very positive book, and it's evangelistic in nature, and it's trying to show people, hey, you don't want to live life this way, this is how you want to live life. Indeed, I think you can see both sides of this as you read the book of Ecclesiastes. So, I would agree with several others that the answer is perhaps what we may call the middle road. Solomon is, is not pessimistic, but he's also not extremely optimistic, okay? And my wife's going to laugh at this one because this is one I have said for years. I'm not a pessimist and I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist. You ever said that before? And I think that's what Ecclesiastes says. It's a very realistic 
reality check of life. Hey, here's what's going to happen. Hey, here's what you're going to experience. Hey, here's what I've been through. He wants us to see life for what it is. And so then one of the major themes of Ecclesiastes is announced from the very beginning. Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This word, vanity, or you may have it in front of you in some of your translations as the word futility or meaningless, is used 38 times in these 12 chapters. And we see at the end of the book... The refrain is repeated in Ecclesiastes 12.8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Okay, what does that mean, Solomon? Well, the Hebrew word for this, I'm not going to put it up on the screen this time, so you'll just have to write it down or remember it later. The word is hevel, H-E-V-E-L, if you want to write that down. Hevel, 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 all is hevel. And it's a hard word for us to translate into English and to understand. So, We're going to kind of explain that a little bit, okay? Because it's not really, you know, if you have it in front of you as meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, really meaningless is kind of a bad, I feel like it's a bad translation of that word because you're just like, well, what's the point, right? It's meaningless. Um, The word in Hebrew means vapor or smoke. Something that's there that's temporary, that that it's, it's, it's fleeting in nature. And so the Solomon is using the word to help us understand that all of life is hevel, it's temporary, it's fleeting, it's, it's only here for this short while and then it's gone. However, it also is a word that's used to highlight the enigmatic and paradoxical nature of life. Um, you see the smoke rising from the fire and you think, well, that's really nice. And you reach out to grab it and what happens? You can see it, but you can't hold it in your hand. The idea here behind the word even is, is like we're chasing after the wind. And so we perhaps understand then why the book of Ecclesiastes has this negative connotation sometimes, right? Because, wow, I mean, it's all vanity, it's all hevel, it's all, but it's a good perspective. I think it's fair to say that it's a reality check for us in life. The teacher is presenting us with the way things are And why is he presenting us with the way things are? Because he wants to remind us we're not in control. God is in control. He says, this is what life is like. And he points us to who is in charge. So you you see some things in the book of Ecclesiastes like our work does not guarantee us anything of lasting value. And we've experienced that in our lives, right? We've worked really hard for something. And then when we go to get it, it's gone. Or we get it, and then it's worthless, right? Our wisdom and righteousness does not guarantee us success in life. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and yet his wisdom didn't always guarantee success when he used that wisdom to serve himself. Justice doesn't always seem to be meted out. The future is ever elusive. So what is Solomon doing here? Well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to put it up on the screen, a a little bit of a longer quote um, from a book, by the way, I highly recommend for every believer to get and put on their shelf. It's the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It comes in an Old Testament and a New Testament. And if you want to study the Word of God, I, I think that's a great tool for you to use while you read your Bible. 
But in the Bible Knowledge Commentary on page 977, the author says it this way. He, the Solomon, intended to demonstrate empirically to people that the insecurity of all human effort to provide real meaning, value, or significance to their lives under the sun and to drive them to trust in God alone. He is showing you the evidence. That's what the word empirically means. Here is the evidence. Here is what, what you have and you experience in life. That everything you have here, everything you experience under the sun, none of that is of any real meaning or value or significance. What matters is the things of God. Now, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things of this life, but we have to enjoy them in their proper perspective and place. And so, this is what exactly what Solomon does, and I want to Point us now to the end of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, there's a couple of verses here that I think are also very important for us to understand the whole book. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11, we read this. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. There's two things here that Solomon talks about with this book. First, is this idea of goads. Now, goads are used by shepherds, and they're used to direct or guide sheep or sometimes oxen. And sometimes they would even have them on the bottom of like their staff or a stick. That's like, it's a, pointy, a pointed object. And, and, and they're not comfortable things, okay? You ever gotten poked with a pointy stick before? Okay? You got that little kid, you've probably been poked by a stick or two, right? And, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel real good, does it? In fact, it inflicts momentary pain. But they are used, the shepherd uses it to help the sheep to go in the way that he should go, or the ox. Okay, this is the way you want to go. Don't go this way, right? Because if you do, you get hit by the goat. In the same way, the things that Solomon presents in this book are not always encouraging. In fact, some of the things of Ecclesiastes are going to hit really close to home in your life. Like, oh, I've experienced that before. Oh, wow. I'm going through that in my life. Man, that really hurts. But these things help to guide us on the right path. The sayings of the book of Ecclesiastes help to guide us on the right path the way we should go. But they're not just goads to to you know, point us and, 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 and be painful. Solomon says they're also what? They're like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Like nails that hold things in place, these sayings are fixed in Scripture. The wisdom of God does not change. The way in which we should go is found within for all time. I don't know if you've noticed, but the wisdom of man is ever-changing, right? The things that we were told to do or eat or this or that 10, 15, 5 years ago, well, you can't have those anymore, right? Or you really should have been eating this, right? Or whatever it may be. 
You know, I, I, I don't know if you like to watch sports. I do. There's always this evolving thing of, well, we've got to focus on this in the sport, or we've got to focus on that. You know, I watch well, baseball, and they talk about um, the degree at which the bat came through the strike zone. I mean, they weren't talking about this stuff 10, 15 years ago, but because the wisdom of man is ever-changing, right? Well, now we're doing this, and now we're doing that, and now we're doing this. You know what doesn't change? The wisdom of God. It's firmly fixed, like what? Like nails. You can always mark it down. What God says is true. And it's timeless. And it helps us to see who we are and who he is. And so the question is this. Okay then, if they're like goads to put us on the right path and like nails that we say, okay, we can always depend on that, what is the right path in which we should go? What are the things that we should always look to? Well, that comes two verses later, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So what does Solomon say? What matters most is living for the Lord. That's what matters most. The goads and the nails point us back to this, the end of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. He's the judge. He's the one we follow. He's the one in control. He's the one who judges all people and events. He's the only one who never changes. And while we enjoy this life he has given us, we must not put it before him. I have experienced in my own life a lot of good things in this life that God has given me. You, sitting in this room, can probably think of a lot of good things God has given you. I'm just going to tell you right now, those great and wonderful and good things you have experienced from God make terrible gods. You begin to worship one of those things in your life, and you'll find out it's a horrible God to serve. You look around and you see your job and you think, well, that's a great job. The minute you make that job your God is the minute that your life is going to be completely off kilter. Well, I have a great family. The minute that you worship your family and you put it before serving the Lord is the minute that things are going to go sideways. Why? Because they're terrible gods. We are made to be worshipers, but we're not made to be worshipers of anything else in life but God and have it work. Many have tried and all have failed. We can only worship God and God alone. And if we get that right in our lives, we can then enjoy the blessings that God gives us in our lives. The fleeting pleasures of life remind us of that. The things we experience when we get off the trail, because I don't know about you, but I get off the trail sometimes, and I experience the things that Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes, that's the goat. Hey, focus back on the Lord. Hey, look to the nails. Look to the things that are fixed in the Scripture Fear God, keep his commandments. Look to him. It is only in God that we find meaning in life. It is the grace of God that gives us these reminders of this reality. So don't be discouraged when you experience the reproach of God in your life. If you are a follower of God and God convicts you of sin, God uses these things in his word to point us back and say, hey, these are some things that are getting out of, out of whack in your life. We thank God for his grace to show us those things. We thank God for bringing us to the end of ourselves that we may see all that he is and find that a meaningful life is found in an eternal perspective that comes from a relationship with God. Again, we're not always going to see things from God's perspective. 
It's impossible for us to do. We are finite people. But we have to trust that God sees it all and trust that he knows best. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. And what I showed you tonight on this slide is exactly what we're going to take as the theme of Ecclesiastes, living a meaningful life. A life of meaning is not only possible, it is also achieved in living for the Lord in light of his sovereignty. The gifts he gives and the way he has set up life to work remind us of this on a daily basis. The wisdom of his word is necessary for us to understand everything we experience here on this earth. And as we study this book, may we be filled with the hope of living a life worth living for the Lord. May we be thankful for the goads we experience in life pointing us back to God. And may we be thankful for the nails of his wisdom firmly fixed by our eternal God. God is sovereign over the world. It works the way he says it does. That's the thing. You read this and you go, wow, that, I, I've, I've experienced that or I've seen that. Yeah, the world works the way God says it's going to work. We can have a relationship with our God who sets the rules and live with his strength for his glory. Father, thank you for the time we've had tonight in your house to study your word once again. Thank you for the faithful testimonies of men like Solomon who spent their lives following you or not following you, struggling just as we all do. Lord, we look at the life of Solomon and we think there's a guy who should have known better, but we should look also in our own hearts and lives at the times we have failed you. See, your grace is just as good to us today as it was then. Help us to be given to looking through your word, studying it, and framing our lives in context of the word of God and not framing God's word in context of our lives. Help us to see that the word of God is unchanging and timeless and has much to teach us today. Lord, help us to see life in its proper perspective, to be given and lived for you and you alone. Be with us now as we wrap up our service, we wrap up our Sunday, we prepare to go out into the the, the, the work week and other things we have ahead of us this week. Help us to live for your honor, your glory. Teach us uh, who you are this week as we spend time with you. In your name we pray. Amen.